Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. We're in our series called As Intended, and we're learning from Jesus in the book of Matthew about relationships. All about how to have the kind of loving relationships that we're actually created for. Whether you happen to be single or married. And so last week in chapter 18, we were looking at forgiveness as the first essential tool for repairing broken relationships. And today we're coming to the main place in the book of Matthew where Jesus talks about relationships, which are chapters 5 through 7, which all of us will be familiar with as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is basically, in Matthew 22, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. And so the Sermon on the Mount, really, a lot of commentators say this is his exposition on that great command. And so what we see is that he gives us a picture of relationships in the Sermon on the Mount that just turns the world inside out, and it gives us the kind of relationships that we're actually looking for. So we're going to read together from Matthew 5, verses 17 to 26, and this is the second of seven dynamics of love that we're going to see as we look through the whole rest of the uh, Sermon on the Mount in this series. And the takeaway from this particular message is this. It's, in the face of anger and contempt, forgiveness and repentance are the essential tools for repairing relationships of love. The two essential tools for repairing relationships of love, forgiveness and repentance. So if you'd open your Bibles, turn them on, to chapter 5 of Matthew. And we find Jesus here addressing his disciples, the crowds of his disciples, and he's declared at the opening of this sermon the, the Beatitudes, these pronouncements that no matter the life circumstances that his disciples find themselves in, they are blessed because they're part of the kingdom of God. And they're the light of the world. They're the salt of the earth. And so we're picking up in verse 17 as Jesus continues. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, for I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the question running through this is, what does it look like to fulfill the law in the true righteousness that it demands. Another way you could put that is, what does a really good person look like, act like? And so Jesus continues, you have heard it said, 
to those of old. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And when he says, insults his brother, some tra- your translation may say, raha, to your brother. And we're going to see what that means. Whoever says, fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So quick question, Bible trivia, who was it in the Old Testament that said, you shall not murder? God. Ding, ding, ding. God said that. And here we have Jesus saying, but I say to you, right? So we have to see what Jesus is doing here, first of all, all right, before we go any further. Jesus is not an interpreter of the law like one of the teachers. He's not a proclaimer of the law like one of the prophets. He is the giver of the law as God the Son. He is the embodied, the enfleshed word of God. And so Jesus is the authority of the law. And as he's teaching about the kingdom of God, he's shaping, what he's doing is, he's shaping a new community around himself. Just like the giving of the law at Sinai shaped this community of Israel where Jesus is shaping the community of the Messiah. This community that will live out the great commandment. And not by means of following rules, but by gaining a heart of love. And so Jesus is it's so key to, to, to actually listen to what he says in verse 17, which is, he is not abolishing the law. He is fulfilling it. He's not issuing new laws here that supersede the old laws, he is talking about the fulfillment of the law. And so the way you can sum this up is that the first point, Jesus illustrates the kind of heart that naturally fulfills the law. That's what he's doing in these, this, this, through the rest of the chapter, he gives six antitheses, these, these kind of us between an old righteousness and the fulfilled righteousness in the Messiah. And when you read this, it's a normal reaction to feel extremely daunted, right? In fact, St. Augustine, who was the African church father who preached on this, said that if we don't feel fear when we're reading this, it's because we, we, we don't have faith, we're not people of faith, if you can read that without a sense of fear. And so it has to make us realize just how untamed our tongues actually are. 
So Augustine asks, he says, human beings can tame every species of animal, but who is there to tame the human being? The animal can't tame itself. And so there were, Plato, the Greek philosopher, he he was writing a few hundred years before Jesus, and he pictured the human soul as a a, a chariot, a driver of a chariot with two horses, and there's one horse that was tame and and obedient, and another horse that was wild and, and unbridled. And so the horse of obedience was, was, was reason and the horse of disobedience of, of, was passion. And so there was this constant tension that he saw in the human being and that horse of passion could just break loose at any time. We're never safe from that side of ourselves, apparently. And so there's this, this constant tension that we live in and I, th- I feel like I like that description because it's pretty accurate to how it feels. It reminds me of Romans 7, where Paul talks about a similar kind of thing. The problem with moral efforts to try and fix that is that they restrict our passions, they keep them in check, and that's a good thing. We need that. But it doesn't actually develop good people, necessarily. You can obey the law and still be a terrible person. It's quite possible to obey all the rules of the law and not be filled with love. But when you have a heart that is transformed with agape love, with God's kind of love, if that is your heart, then simply by living out the contents of your heart, you will obey the law. And so that's what Jesus is pointing out when he gives us this this series of contrasts between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. And so if you think about this, you think about the one who's saying it, if you look at the life of Jesus, he is describing the contents of his own heart. He's describing his own character. Because when you think about it, when you think of Jesus in his relationships, he demonstrated everything that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And when you look at Jesus, I don't, I don't know if you, you picture him kind of gritting his teeth and like, oh, you know, I've got to love these people. And oh, this, this, this leper is so annoying, but I, best, I guess I better... You don't picture him like that. I, I, I hope you don't picture him like that. <laughs> you picture it as the most natural thing in the world for him to do the things that he does. And so, that's exactly the kind of people that he promises he is making his kids into. Romans 8.29 says, you've been, you've been chosen, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is a promise that every one of the children of God is predestined to look like Jesus, to have the character of Jesus worked into them. The kind of people who live out the the law naturally because it's who they are. And so what we see is the goodness of Jesus fulfills the intent of the law because it transforms our hearts with the love of God. And when you love as God loves, you naturally obey the law. So true goodness 
it goes far beyond just the external actions. And this is the next point. True goodness must deal with the sources of behavior. True goodness is not just the absence of the actions, it's the absence of the, in, of the inclination towards the actions. You're not only a thief if you steal something, you're a thief if you would steal something if you could get away with it. And most studies of ethics and morality show that most of us, if we knew we could get away with things, would do a lot more things. And so what what Jesus is getting at here, he's he's not just getting at the actions, he's getting to the source of where those things come from. He's getting to the roots of the things that drive human sinfulness. And so the first thing that that he touches on is that murder does not originate at the moment of just killing a person. He's almost talking about it as murder is, is the, it's the fruit of a diseased tree. It's the fruit of this poisoned tree. And so you may never have actually killed somebody, but have you ever thought about killing somebody? Have you ever treated someone as if they were unworthy of their existence. And you don't have to think too far. If, you're, if your family at all, hopefully not, but if, if your family has experienced grudges at all, you can, you can very quickly see that a person, a person doesn't have to be physically dead to be as good as dead in terms of relationships. And so merely limiting murder... I mean, that's it's good. Let's keep that one. But, but it's a baseline. It doesn't produce goodness. We have to deal with the sources. And so Jesus begins with this description of the goodness of the kingdom by removing the source of anger. And then he goes on to lust. And we're gonna be, we'll look at that one next week. But, but Dallas Willard, the, the Christian philosopher, says that... Um, These are the two primary occasions for the breakdown of human relationships, anger and lust. And if we could just get rid of those two things, we would deal with almost all the problems of humanity. Lust is about our, it's about what our wills desire, and anger is the result of our wills being crossed. And so lust dehumanizes people by turning them into objects like we'll see next week, but anger goes further. And I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it, that every anger attacks the life of the other person. It begrudges others their lives. It craves the other's destruction. And so our next point here is that human hostility is bred of anger and contempt. So let's get into what Jesus is addressing here with anger. So there's, there's, there were two words in Greek for anger. There was thimos, and, and thimos is, is what you could say, you could describe it as the emotional reaction of anger. This is kind of like the hot anger that, that flares up and it dissipates quickly. It's the occasion of anger. And anger as a mere emotion is not evil in itself, although it's still best to learn how to avoid it. And the Bible warns us about that. But in one sense, that type of anger, it's not really something you necessarily choose. 
You might have a proclivity to it, but you don't necessarily choose it in the moment. You more kind of experience it. And so is Jesus saying that just when you experience anger, you're as good as a murderer? Well, that's, that's not the word that he actually uses. He uses this other word, which is, which is an anger that is inveterate. It's an anger that you stew in. This is a chosen anger. This is an anger that's become embraced and that becomes indulgent. How many of you know it can be somehow pleasurable to indulge in your sense of anger? And so what Jesus seems to have in mind here is the kind of anger that, that you don't just experience in a moment of emotion, but that you embrace. That you accept and you may even come to enjoy perversely. And so, in that type of anger, as he goes on to show, there's a, there's a progression. So, inveterate anger, that type of anger is, is bad, but Jesus says contempt is the next thing. And contempt is maybe even worse. So this is what anger, when you, when you indulge in anger, what it breeds is contempt. It makes you feel superior. It makes you feel righteous. And so when Jesus says, when you insult your brother, or the, 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 the actual Greek there is to use the word racha. And all the commentators say this is, this is an untranslatable word because it's not really a word. It's more of a sound. It's an, it's an onomatopoeia. And, and it's basically what they say is it's the sound of hawking up Phlegm. <laughs> so what is that? that? That is the sound of disgust. It's the sound of contempt. It's an outburst. It's a reaction to a person that disgusts you. That, that's what contempt is. And Jesus says, well, anger can make you liable to the court, but racha makes us liable to the Supreme Court, he says. And it goes even further. He says, calling someone a fool makes you liable to hellfire. And the word fool here, it's not just meaning, oh, you dumb person, you know. You're an idiot. It, it means more than that. It's, it's, it's using the word fool in the way that the book of Proverbs uses the, uses the word fool, which is to say a morally inferior person, a, 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 a morally deficient person. And so Jesus here, he's really talking about defaming people, judging them, ruining their reputation. That's the type of speech that murders people's standing before others. You're passing judgment on someone. And so Jesus, he's revealing to us this this anger that sets you on a trajectory that ultimately leads to the, the destruction of human life. Anger births contempt, which births dehumanizing language, which, which when it is fully grown, gives birth to physical violence and murder. And so this is, this is the root of fallings out 
of vendettas, of revenge, of church splits. It's the root of wars and civil wars and even genocides. Without fail. It is impossible to go there without anger and utter contempt. And so, the challenge for us is that we, we live and swim in a time in the world, in a culture where anger and contempt are just the way we do things. It's so normal, I think, to us that we, 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 we almost hardly recognize it. People call it the, the culture of outrage. We're in a cultural moment where this type of anger and contempt for those that we consider enemies, it's not only tolerated, but it's celebrated as part of the norm. Some people, believe it or not, this is kind of mainstream teaching that anger and, and to an extent contempt, but, but certainly anger is something to embrace for the sake of truth and justice. And so people are actually specifically teaching to hold on to anger, to stew in it. And there's this appetite for outrage that rewards us when we say the quiet things out loud. When we say it like it is. Which is another way of saying, you know, voicing our contempt and antagonism for other people. It sells newspapers. It fills our public discourse. And if you don't believe me, you know, just check the comment section of any social media platform. And what, te- what Jesus is teaching here is if we want to experience what we're actually created for, loving, intimate relationships with God and with man, we cannot allow these things to stew in us. We have to uproot them. And here's the next point, that love cannot embrace anger or contempt. I'm not saying it can never experience them, but it can't embrace them. The community of Jesus, that's the church, cannot abide anger and contempt. Jesus says, they're, they're, for, the, for the people of the Messiah, they're completely out of bounds. We don't ever have a right to hold on to them. And so the first half of this passage, it completely outlaws them in the kingdom of God. They're completely contrary to the heart of Jesus. They're completely contrary. They hold us back, actually, from fulfilling the great commandment. But then in the second half of the passage, Jesus recognizes that even though that's true and that's the case, we are nevertheless still in a situation where we're going to encounter these things. We're going to experience them and we're going to come across them because the kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness yet. It's here and it's not yet. And so what's the answer? How do we practice these things? Well, it's not just not doing them. It's not just saying 
you know, don't be angry and don't be contemptuous. Simply not doing things doesn't produce love. Any more than simply not going to Atlanta is not a plan for how to get to New York. If you're going to get to New York, you obviously can't go to Atlanta. But just not going to Atlanta doesn't mean you're going to end up in New York. You need a specific pathway to take you there. And so the answer is not just not doing evil, it's learning from Jesus how to love actively as he loves. And so the answer, when, you love, when you're learning to love people, all right, the result of that as you're doing that, as you, when you learn to love people as you love yourself and you begin to see them more and more as the precious images of God, what happens is you're no longer constantly holding yourself back from killing them. Or from dehumanizing them with your language. And suddenly the things that took so much effort to hold ourselves back from, now they become just as unnatural to us as the good once was unnatural to us. And so he goes on to give us two illustrations of what the heart that's filled with love does with this. What does this love look like in action? And so my next point here is the community of love prioritizes repentance. The community of love prioritizes repentance. And so the first, he, gives, he gives these two illustrations. One is a temple illustration. One is a courtroom illustration. And the first one, he gets his audience to imagine themselves at the temple, which was the only place that they could offer sacrifices. They have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. He says, imagine you're in the temple, you're bringing your sin offering, your offering of atonement, and you suddenly realize that someone's got something against you. By the way, the, the offerings of atonement did not cover conscious sin. They only covered unconscious sins. And so if you became conscious of a sin, the Jews already knew you had to make it right. But the, 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 he, he's taking them into an absurd situation here because he says, okay, leave your gift at the altar, go and fix it, and come back. Now, what we forget here is the geography of this. Jesus is in Galilee. It's several days' journey away from Jerusalem. And so he's telling people, and by the way, if you were in the middle of a temple ritual like that, you could not abandon it to like go make up with your brother. That, that wasn't allowed. So you couldn't interrupt that kind of thing to go make this several days journey and come back later. It, it's a bit like, I was trying to think of a way to make it you know, similarly absurd to us. It would be kind of like, imagine you're in the, in the middle of your wedding ceremony and you suddenly realize that you offended somebody in your hometown. And if that's the case, leave the ceremony right then and there, fly home, make it right, and come back, and hopefully everyone will still be waiting there. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's an absurdity to, to drive home the point of how important it is to seek reconciliation. Jesus is saying relationships are central. 
And we shouldn't pretend to worship God while we're aware of a broken relationship that we're not actively trying to mend. Bonhoeffer put it this way in The Cost of Discipleship. He said, individuals as well as church communities who intend to enter God's presence with contemptuous or unreconciled hearts are playing games with an idol. God does not want to be honored if a sister or brother is dishonored. Those are strong words. There's probably times when it would be better to cancel church than move ahead with it. And sometimes we wonder why there's a barrier between us and God. You know, we, we sometimes wonder why church just doesn't seem to be doing it for us anymore. And more often than not, the answer is probably that we have some unaware or unreconciled anger or contempt for a brother or sister and have not yet taken steps to reconcile it. Relationships, this is what Jesus is saying, relationships take precedence over worship. Even worship. Relationships take precedence. God does not want us ministering to him or his people in a state of conscious unwillingness to reconcile. These are hard words, Jesus. And yet he's driving home just how essential it is to reconcile. And I have to say at this point that, of course, there's times when you may have done your utmost to reconcile. It takes two. It takes two people to do it. But you have to notice that working towards reconciliation, it's, it's, it's so important to Jesus that he, taught, he gives six illustrations of reconciling with, with human beings about human relationships before he even starts talking about relationship with God. We have to wait to chapter six before he starts talking about prayer and, 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 and you know, our, our relationship with God. Why does he start with human relationships? Well, I think it's much easier to fool ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. But it's hard to ignore the effects of the brokenness of human relationships. 1 John says, anyone who says I love God yet hates his brother is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And so human relationships constantly need repair and there's two positive practices that repair and maintain our relationships more than anything else and it's what we looked at last week in forgiveness and today in repentance. They go hand in hand. And without these two dynamics at play, relationships quickly fall apart. But the good news is, if any two people know both of the people, know how to forgive and repent, they're making room for relationship to flourish. So these are, when we talk about marriage and singleness, these are essential tools for marriage. If both a husband and wife are willing to both truly forgive and repent in Christ, then there can be healing, there can be reconciliation almost, almost without limit. But of course, 
As I say again, both people have to be completely committed to it for that to happen. And so that's true in marriage. Repentance and forgiveness are these key tools and skills that we need. But it's equally true of family. It's equally true of friendship. And Jesus is saying, don't wait for the other person to come to you. Don't say, well, you know, that's their problem if they're offended. If that bothers you, it's not nothing to do with me. No, he says, put that relationship, put your relationship over everything. And if you know that they've got something against you, Jesus says, take initiative because that is the heart of love. And the second point is this, as he goes into his second illustration. So the first is that the heart, community of love prioritizes repentance. But secondly, the heart of love is quick to repent. The heart of love is quick in repentance. And Jesus gives a second example of being taken to court. And it's, it's probably a picture of debtor's court. You know, there's, there's a debt that's owed. And he says, go to the one who has an accusation against you and make peace with them quickly. So the heart of love doesn't pursue reconciliation when it gets around to it. There's an urgency to it, Jesus says. And in one way, Jesus is being super practical because it makes perfect financial sense to deal with a debt as soon as possible because debts build. They grow with time. And anger and bitterness are exactly like that. They are not the kinds of things that are healed with time. They, they stew over time. They get thicker Bitterness begets bitterness. They get, and here's the thing, they get passed on from generation to generation. And the more we hold on to it, the more righteous we feel. But Jesus says reconciliation is more important than, than just who's right. When he talks about this court case, he's not emphasizing who's right and who's wrong. He's saying, go make peace. And he's not saying just give in to everything. He's not saying, you know, that that you should never go to court. Of course, there's times to go to court. What he's saying is, if you allow a heart of anger and contempt to, to run its full course, it will take everything you have. It will eat you alive. And if you don't do your part to reconcile while you can, it's going to take more and more and more away from you. And so Jesus says, do something about it while you still can. We are still in the time where we have time, where there's grace to make amends, and our time is not unlimited. Marriages come to an end. Life comes to an end. And so Jesus is saying, fix your problems do your most to fix your problems before they continue to grow and they become unresolvable. So if, if you've fallen out with a friend here this morning and maybe you were unaware of it, don't continue to wait for them to come to you. If there's even one thing that you can repent of, take the initiative. And many, many times, especially if it's not some, you know, uh, really horrendous 
thing. A lot of times we don't fall out over, over particularly huge things. They're little things that can drive a wedge and, and we end up falling, you know, driving us apart. And, and when you take that little initiative, you'll be amazed many times how that relationship gets rekindled and the person is willing to accept you back. I wish it were always that simple. Of course, it's not. If you're married, I would encourage married couples to get marriage coaching, get marriage counseling before you're in crisis. And we had a good friend who recommended that to Selene and I, and we took their advice and we did some marriage coaching and we were not, as far as we knew, in any kind of crisis, but it was so healthy for us. It actually, the Lord used it to reveal areas where there were hurts. There were things that we needed to deal with and bring out in the open. And it led to a deeper level of love and intimacy together. And so I, I highly recommend that. It doesn't have to be, you know, if you don't have the resources to hire a professional, it's, it's, it's going to um, older, wiser people in the faith who can speak into your marriage and help you. And so repentance, the kind of repentance Jesus is talking about here is costly. But what he's saying is lack of repentance is infinitely costlier. However much repentance will cost us, it costs less than than the alternative. And what he's saying is the heart of love cannot abide, it cannot embrace anger and contempt. It places priority on the relationship whenever it realizes it's hurt someone. And it's quick to repent. It's it's the first to reconcile as quickly as possible. That is love in action. And you're probably wondering, well, how do we do this? How do you actually have the power to do this? And I want to tell you, it's not by more laws. It's not that Jesus is saying, you know, in addition to not murdering people, also don't call them racha and fool, and you'll be good. It's not just by not doing things, it's by the positive practice of these things in our lives in relationship to Jesus, in discipleship to him. And the truth is, and this is our last point, that only the gospel sets us free for repentance. And I'm not just talking about the one time, you know, that initial repentance before God, but the gospel actually sets us free for this kind of lifestyle of repentance. And if you try and treat what Jesus says just as laws, as legal principles to follow, all it does is lead you to behavior modification. And it doesn't deal with the the source, with the root of the problems. It just leads you probably even further into a cycle of broken relationships. The only way this commandment can be fulfilled is in the cross. Jesus is our brother who took on the anger, the hatred, the offense of all the world onto himself. Who, even though he was the only one in history who had no need to repent of anything, he took all of that on so that we wouldn't have to bear the weight of that cost. He took the first step 
even though he was not the one in the wrong. And he not only left his sacrifice at the altar, he became the sacrifice on the altar so that we could be reconciled to God. He surrendered his will. He surrendered his right to be angry justly at sin so that the righteousness, the the, the righteous anger of God would not fall on us. And even though he was the one in the second illustration with the accusation against us, even though we were the ones that owed a debt to him, he's the one that sought us out and made a way for peace so we would not have to face the judgment. And so in the gospel, relationships with our brothers and sisters, they're they're not just an arena for obedience to take place. They're, they're, They're an opportunity for grace. Those relationships become the primary place where Jesus cultivates his love in us. And so each time we feel anger and contempt rising within us, the gospel disarms that. And it it frees us to be able to think, instead of my own will being crossed and me being angry about that, the gospel reminds me of how I, time after time after time, have crossed God's will and deserved his anger and contempt. And instead of despising and judging others, the gospel frees me because I knew I was also worthy of that judgment and condemnation but we've been forgiven because of Jesus. And so each time it becomes an opportunity to surrender our own will and pride and repent before God and before others. And every time we do that, we're living out the freedom of the gospel. And so the first step is repentance towards God, but then this repentance becomes, we're free to to make it a lifestyle with our brothers and sisters. And we become the kind of people who are able to repent because we've already been forgiven. So there's times where we're going to get angry at each other. There's times where we may disgust one another. And we'll feel contempt rising up in ourselves. But following Jesus means we have to refuse to embrace those things. And so I just appeal to everyone here, if there's broken relationships in your life, don't allow them to continue that way. Don't don't allow them to fester. Let's take up the practice of forgiveness and repentance towards one another because that's the only way that we can cultivate the relationships of love that we so desperately need and want. And if we desire the revival that we pray for, Repentance is a necessary ingredient. And so I'm going I'm to close in prayer and, 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 and invite the musicians to just close us with a, a chorus. Um, and if there's anyone here who has never made that first step of turning to God and repenting, saying, Lord, I, I know you've got a claim against me. I know I owe you a debt, but I want to make peace. Jesus has made a way for you, 
And you don't need to fear the judgment because he's made peace for you and you can be reconciled with God right now. And you come to him simply in prayer and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for my sin. Thank you that you love me enough that you died for me. I believe that you rose again and I want to follow you for the rest of my life. Please give me your Holy Spirit and give me this kind of heart of love. Change me from the inside out. And when you pray that, he welcomes you into his family and, and you become his kid and you become part of a family. And so if you, you're making that commitment today for the first time, come talk to me about it. Come, if you're online, talk to Pastor Mike or if you're in McCungy, share it with one of the leaders. But why don't we stand together and just close in prayer. Lord, thank you that you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We thank you for that love and relationship that you've designed us for and Lord, we so deeply desire. Jesus, we thank you for these dynamics, these tools of love, forgiveness, repentance, Holy Spirit, would you enable us, would you empower us to reject the the anger and contempt that, that tries to take roots in our heart? Lord, so that we would be free to love others and love you just as we were designed to do. Teach us, Lord Jesus. Lord, and as we, as we turn to you, as we repent, Lord, release your revival among us. Bring us a new breath of life, a new fresh hunger for you. I pray for these 30 nights of of rest that are taking place right now. Lord, that you would do something sovereign among us and release your joy, your, 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 your freedom, your rest in your grace. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.